This podcast contains adult language and subject matter. Rafalski, Rafalski, Sakura save, rebound, Eliash held it, tried to get it over wide side. It was blocked and a whistle. A whistle as the official lost sight of the puck, but Patrick Waugh right now is playing out of his mind. You bet. Patrick Waugh was arguably the first modern goalie, the netminder with the strongest link to the ubiquitous butterfly style. He is to goalies what Bobby Orr is to defensemen. He was also the ultimate headline maker. He was unfailingly clutch in the crease. He loved to poke the bear by unleashing a chirp or flashing the leather. He had strange superstitions, and he was a powder keg, seemingly ready to burst at all times. The result? Four Stanley Cup rings over 18 seasons for the Montreal Canadiens and Colorado Avalanche. And an almost mythical reputation. Waugh was the full package. I'm John Mattis, and this is When Goalies Were Weird, a narrative podcast from The Score. Each episode tells the story of one unforgettable 1990s-era goalie. In the 90s, there was no more fascinating position in all of professional sports than the hockey goalie. These goalies were just plain weird. They played weird, with weird hybrid styles and funky mechanics. They looked weird and acted weird, with weird helmets, superstitions, and bad tempers. The position was undergoing a revolution in style and substance as the butterfly goalie replaced the stand-up while advancements in equipment technology helped usher in a modernized, more athletic playing style. The old guard's quirks and the new guard's innovations melded together to produce an era of pure chaos in the blue paint. It was the most bewildering amalgamation of players hockey has ever produced. And one fans will never forget. There's a case to be made for Patrick Waugh being hockey's version of Michael Jordan. Waugh wasn't as transcendent as MJ, but they did share a mindset. Like Jordan, Waugh was possessed by the will to win. He would tell Avalanche teammates, in no uncertain terms, that the mandate was to win first, form friendships second. Winning a cup would create bonds, not the other way around. Historically, goalies have led and inspired through their play. Waugh, who had no trouble leading by example, was also unapologetically vocal and, at times, cutthroat. He had an arrogant, street fighter mentality, and while some rolled their eyes, others fed off of it. Here's ex-Canadians Captain Guy Carboneau on Waugh's arrogance. Every great athlete is arrogant, in a way. I mean, that's, that's what you want. Like, you go in front of people, or one guy, like in boxing, it's one-on-one. If you're not arrogant and you don't think you can win, don't step in the ring. It's the same thing on, on the ice. I, I think his arrogance was confidence in himself. I remember in a playoff a couple of times where he said, okay, guys, you know, just score one goal. That's all you, you're going to need. Um, is it arrogant? Sure. I mean, to think it is one thing, to be able to say it is another thing. But, like, I mean, that's the confidence he had in himself. This attitude wasn't limited to private moments. No, Waugh unleashed plenty of chirps and jabs for the camera, which is something fellow 90s star Jeremy Roenick knows firsthand. 
1996, a verbal feud between the two concluded with Wad delivering one of hockey's most evocative sound bites. I can't really hear what Jeremy says because I got my two Stanley Cup rings plugged in my ear. <laughs> Wall was also a prominent figure in the heated Colorado-Detroit rivalry of the mid to late 90s and early 2000s. He was in his element, challenging Hall of Fame Red Wings, Steve Eiserman, Nicholas Lidstrom, Sergei Fedorov, and Brendan Shanahan, as well as trading saves and punches with goalies Mike Vernon and Chris Osgood. Mark Crawford coached the Avs from 95 to 98. Although he didn't encourage his starter to join line brawls, the longtime NHL bench boss says he understood Waugh's intentions. He did things for a lot of different reasons. Patrick very rarely would do it just out of the emotion of the moment. I think about the things that you see on the highlight tapes, whether it was the fight in Detroit, Patrick was just being a teammate and recognizing to be a good teammate. You know, when he made the comments about Jeremy Roenick, in some respects, he was taking pressure uh, off our other superstars in the, the game, whether it was uh, Sandus Oslin, Joe Sackick, or Peter Forsberg, who were all young people. He very rarely did things selfishly. He did them uh, because he usually had an ulterior motive that was team-orientated uh, in the back of his mind. To Crawford, what was more or less an extension of Colorado's coaching staff? He was so thorough in his study of the sport, so attuned to the performances of his Avs teammates, that he would openly evaluate the team's strengths and weaknesses. Shane Corson, one of Waugh's teammates in Montreal, says Waugh would often criticize and compliment his game. The forward welcomed the commentary, since he felt the analysis was fair. It motivated him. Not everyone had the same experience. Case in point. Waugh and Matthew Schneider once fought between periods, reportedly because the defensemen had grown tired of Waugh's non-stop criticism. Schneider was subsequently traded to the New York Islanders. Waugh studied his goalie peers, too, and he couldn't help but try to keep up with all of the era's novelties. Ex-Av Adam Foote chuckles, thinking back to Waugh's obsession over scoring a goalie goal after watching Ron Hextall and Martin Brodeur pull off the trick. He wanted to score because Hextall and Brodeur got it, like they all got the goal, so... Then when one of them fought, then he had to get in a fight. I remember we, we, we had those good teams, and he'd be telling us to drop it back to him, and it got so crazy. We're up two or three goals, and we're dropping it back to Law, and they're, they're just sitting back, and they're picking off his high risk, and we're like, okay, this is stupid. Like we're, we're embarrassing the other team, but he wanted a goal so bad. For the record, Waugh is not one of the 12 goalies with an NHL goal, which is unfortunate. It would have added another must-see sequence to a career defined by the dramatic. Francois Jaguer, a former executive vice president for the Avs, shares an amusing behind-the-scenes story that further illustrates Waugh's next-level tunnel vision and combative personality. It was a day or two before the 96 Cup Final. Jaguer and Avs GM Pierre Lacroix were at the rink catching up with their Florida Panthers counterparts, Bill Torrey and Brian Murray, when Waugh was spotted milling about after practice. We'll let Jaguer take it from here. Pierre asked Patrick to come over to, to meet the Bill Torrey and, and Brian Murray. He says, do you know these guys I want to introduce? And, and Patrick says, says hi to both of them. He says, congratulations on uh, making it to the finals, but it ends here. And he leaves. <laughs> it was just who he was. It was like confidence that was unbelievable. Waz's declaration came true a week later, as the Avs swept the Panthers in four games. The lasting image from the 96 run wasn't Wah lifting the cup for the third time in a decade. It was actually him getting pelted by plastic rats. Plays it ahead. 
Brought back on, but not yet controlled by Shepard. Over to Straka. To Shepard, it's good! This is the Avalanche's first look at the Rats. My goodness. Well, this is the heaviest. Tossing rats onto the ice after Panthers goals became a friendly act of intimidation for Florida fans. And despite seeing goalies take shelter in the net throughout the playoffs, Waugh refused to budge, standing tall. Famously, Waugh then pledged to his Avs teammates in the middle of Game 3 that there would be no more rats. He went on to shut out the Panthers not only for the rest of the game, but also a marathon six-period Game 4. Foot relays a revealing one-on-one conversation between him and Waugh. I said, why didn't you tuck in your net when the rats came down on the Florida series? He goes, why would I? I go, that's a sign of weakness. So I don't know why those goalies would do that. Who cares? It's just a freaking rubber rat. I got a mask on. <laughs> and I go, wow, yeah. He goes, I'm not going to show them that they got me, you know? And it was brilliant. Going back to practice, like, how many goals you play with? You, you, you know, you put your water bottle on top of the net. Of course, we're going to try to break it. Like, come on, it's, it's a target. But Wad, nothing bothered him with that. You could hit him in the head, you shoot him in the back of his leg while the play's on. He was just focused on getting ready for every game. Wad may have displayed calmness with the Rats, but his temper could get the best of him. In October 2000, just a week after breaking Terry Sawcheck's wins record, Wad was arrested and charged with criminal mischief. He and his wife Michelle had been in an argument, and the incident involved Wad damaging doors in the couple's Denver home. A few months later, the case was dismissed, and Waugh was cleared of the charge. According to the CBC, a judge ruled the case fell short of the standard needed for misdemeanor criminal mischief during an act of domestic violence. Another headline-making incident unfolded following a 98-99 regular season game. Waugh, then 33, reportedly used his goalie stick to smash a TV and VCR in the visitor's coach's room in Anaheim. He was pissed at Avs coach Bob Hartley who, in an attempt to delay the game to give his best skaters a rest, yanked Waugh with under two minutes left. The Avs scored the game winner with Waugh's backup in net, giving the backup, not Waugh, the win. He had saved 27 of 29 shots, but had nothing to show for it. Hartley, who's close with Waugh to this day, offers some perspective on the blow-up. Pierre Lacroix there, Brian Trottier, myself, Jacques Cloutier, and suddenly Patrick gets in the the other door and he says I need to talk with you guys and I we can see his eyes you know <laughs> going crazy a little bit and everything we could see that he's mad and we said what's wrong I need to talk I'll never break Terry Sachuk's record confrontations after games they're not healthy and sometimes they cause more damage than they fix things. I told them, I said, hey, tomorrow morning, come to my office. We're going to talk about it. And we left because we were ready to leave. We had our bags on our shoulders. So we left and he pushed the TV off the little buggy. And that was the end of the story for this. The next morning we talked and everything. And it, it got us closer. I explained to him the rationale behind my decision, my feeling throughout the game. So, hey, that's part of a hockey season. Hartley learned to embrace Waugh's aversion to losing, especially if the loss came at the hands of another stud goalie, namely Brodeur, Eddie Belfour, or Dominic Hasek. As Hartley puts it, once the lion was out of his cage and Waugh started turning up the heat in practice, the coaching staff could sense an Avs winning streak coming down the pike. 
he's a perfectionist. That, that was his drive, his appetite. That set him aside from so many players that I've coached, and I've coached some great players. Everyone, everyone says they want to win, you know, and I, I believe too that everyone wants to win. But how far are you ready to go to win? There's limits, you know. Patrick, there's no limits. He's going to be ready to do to do everything. I, I think his mental preparation was as good as I've seen from anybody else. A lot of Montreal fans are pinning their hopes on Patrick Roy, their spectacular rookie goalie. Wendy Mesley reports. This could be the start of another hockey dynasty. And like many of the others, this one follows the Canadians' tradition of great goaltending. Patrick Waugh grew up a swimmer, a tennis player, and a hockey goalie. In two of those sports, so much of the athlete's performance is within their control. Hockey is a free-flowing team sport in which teams tend to be only as good as their weakest link. That dynamic hit Waugh like a ton of bricks in the early 1980s. His junior team, the Granby Bisons, flat out stunk. They routinely got slaughtered on the shot clock and won a measly 73 of 208 games during Waugh's three-year QMJHL career. Francois Allaire was the goalie coach for the Verdun Junior back then. He recalls Verdun steamrolling Granby and Waugh ultimately having little say over the final score. Sometimes we were beating them 10 to 1, 10 to 2, and he got uh, 65 shots, and but he was not a guy who gave up in the game, but of course, because of your, your team, sometimes, you know, you have to do whatever it's possible to stop the puck because you know you're going to give an, another scoring chance, another shot, another goal. So he was a battler more than everything else. Oh yeah, Walker could battle, but he despised losing. The situation in Granby got so demoralizing that at one point, Waugh informed his mom he might quit hockey altogether. Worried, Barbara Waugh connected with local NHLer Dan Bouchard through a mutual friend. She asked the Quebec Nordiques goalie for advice. A few days later, Bouchard tracked down Waugh at school to engage in some real talk about the ups and downs Netminder's experience at all ages and skill levels. Then, Bouchard handed Waugh a signed stick. See you in the show, it read. The dreamlike interaction was the pick-me-up Waugh needed. He put his head down and weathered the blowouts. Good thing, too, because the Canadians were watching intently. In the 1984 NHL draft, the Habs selected Waugh in the third round, 51st overall. He escaped Granby after the next junior season, joining Montreal's AHL affiliate at the end of 84-85. Allaire had been hired as the club's AHL goalie coach around the same time and was eager to dig in. From the get-go, Allaire says, he and Waugh were amicable partners. I bought a lot of uh, new idea. I wants to change a lot of stuff. And, and Patrick was really, really smart to decide which stuff is good for him, his game, and which stuff is not good for his game. So my job was to be a guy who bring a lot of ideas, sometimes good one, sometimes bad one. But the guy who at the end who decided who's going to, who's who's kind of a uh, different movement or what kind of drill or what kind of uh, situation we're going to play. Patrick decided he was a really intelligent athlete. His IQ, sport IQ is really high. 
In 2021, the names Patrick Waugh and Francois Lair are forever linked. They popularized the butterfly style of goaltending together. There was no goalie and coach tandem more critical to the evolution of the position. At the evolution's core was a drive to play the position more effectively and more efficiently. A stand-up goalie rarely drops down to make saves. He prioritizes covering off the upper half of the net and uses kicking motions to make saves below the waist. Conversely, a butterfly goalie prioritizes the bottom half. He drops to his knees often, and instead of reading and reacting, he uses his skating to set himself to block shots. Goalie luminaries Glenn Hall and Tony Esposito introduced the butterfly style to the masses. They were the true pioneers. Alaren Waugh took the style to its logical extreme by incorporating movements that put the goalie in the best spot to make a save. When you start to use a butterfly, that's mean you put, I would say, 90%, 95% of your body under the crossbar. You cover what is the most important for a goalie, that's the net. You have to protect the net. I would say before uh, Patrick, most of the goalie were using their glove, catching glove, their blocker, and their pads. So that was a three piece of equipment that we're using to stop the puck. When we start to introduce the butterfly in different situation, now you can use your pen, you can use your knee, you can use your pad, you can use your hands, and you can use your upper body. You use all part of your body to stop the puck, so that's way more surface in, in front of the net and warm, way more uh, possibility to stop the puck. Brian Hayward was Waugh's goalie partner in Montreal for four seasons in the late 80s. He says during this time, the previous generation of goalies would complain about the butterfly, insisting it was a cop-out. To the old guard, dropping to your knees was viewed as a less sophisticated way of stopping the puck. Fueling the discontent was the fact that not every NHL-caliber goalie was suited for this trendy new style. To adopt the butterfly, a goalie must either be a strong skater or be willing to improve their skating. There's also a greater amount of flexibility required. Allaire once described Waugh as a Ferrari and Hayward as a Cadillac. It wasn't a dig at Hayward, the former goalie says. It was merely a way to differentiate two types of goalies. Well, the Cadillac hurts a, a little bit in that, uh, um, you know, when you're comparing it against a Ferrari. But in, in terms of how it fits, how Allaire teaches, no question. And it really does boil down to that flexibility in, in the hip joint. If you're a butterfly goaltender and you're going to play the percentages a lot by getting down early, you want as much coverage as you can. I, I had barely any coverage. And it's the reason why when Frank, as I would call him, would tell me to try things, I would just say, I'm not doing that. That doesn't work for me. It's important to note that Alaire and Waugh don't establish a new normal in goalie circles without the help of a third party. Hockey equipment companies. The reimagination of goalie gear ushered in the butterfly trend just as much as the actual on-ice movements. These guys needed functional equipment. For example, a safer goalie mask empowered goalies to bring their head into the line of fire below the crossbar. Equipment bulked up in the shoulder, chest, rib, elbow, and arm areas. Pants were modified as well. Perhaps most importantly, Goalie pads went from hugging the goalie's legs for maximum protection to loosening up and widening out for better coverage. Amid all of this change, equipment weight began factoring into the equation more and more. Waz believed to be the first netminder to wear six-pound pads in the nine-pound era. 
Hayward has been a TV analyst covering the Anaheim Ducks for nearly 30 years. Here's his take on the equipment overhaul and the impact it's had on big league puck stopping. There were guys cheating about the width of their pads, and all of us cheated, by the way, a little bit. A little bit of extra width on our pads. Frank would say that width doesn't mean anything. It's going to be the length of the pad that makes the difference. And to this day, I, I will tell anybody who will listen, if they want more goals, all they have to do is cut down the length, the height of the goalie pad above the knee so that there's a five hole again. They won't just be able to fall. They'll have to think about a little bit more about what they're doing. Waugh and the Sherbrooke Canadians won the AHL's Calder Cup in 84-85. He then graduated to the big club and guided the Habs to the 86 Stanley Cup. Waugh won the Conn Smythe that postseason, and then he scooped up two Vesna trophies to close out the 80s. Reaching superstardom on an iconic team spawned a flood of French-Canadian goalies. Think Martin Biron, Jose Theodore, Roberto Luongo, Felix Potvin, J.S. Chaguer, Marc Denis, and several others. Seemingly all of them looked up to Waugh, and the vast majority copied his playing style. It didn't hurt that Waugh was a confident man rocking colored pads, a matching blocker and glove set, and a fancy helmet. He was cool. From Allaire's unique vantage point, there was no denying Waugh had evolved into a larger-than-life figure. I used to have a lot of uh, hockey school and we were asking to the kid, hey, who wants to be a goalie today? And I would say three quarter of the room just raised their hands and say, I want to be a goalie for today. You know, everybody wants to be a goalie. So that's bringing a lot of uh, kids, good athletes, really good athletes, who before were going to be a defenseman or forward. The guy was a scorer, so you become a forward. Now we got the kids with talent and size who wants to be a goalie. And I think that bring a lot of uh, one generation of uh, a French Canadian guy in the NHL. At the end of the career of Patrick, I would say most of the team in the NHL got a French goalie. Roy says his style will change a bit. He says he wants to be more of a stand-up goalie. But that twitching, bobbing head movement is a permanent part of Patrick's repertoire. I move my head, and uh, you know, because it's really hot. The second point, it's uh, my idol was uh, Daniel Bouchard, and Daniel Bouchard uh, always do that, you know. And uh, you know, uh, sometimes I have a hair in my eyes, and I just want to move because during the game I can't always took off my helmet. Fast food was Wa's favorite kind of food as a kid. A burger and fries with a soft drink kept him happy, according to his father, Michel, who wrote a book about his son in 2007. That's pretty standard behavior for a growing boy with a high metabolism, right? Well, these fast food cravings stuck around for the better part of two decades. Ask a Canadians player from the mid to late 1980s to share a nugget of insight about what Wall was like off the ice, and the teammate will default to one snapshot the goalie scarfing down a container, or casso, of french fries. He used to eat french fries, he'd eat at McDonald's all the time, his diet was horrendous, apparently, in the, the early going. But what young kid, especially back in that day, it's not like today, you got a nutritionist, you got a mental coach, you got, a, you got someone change your diaper for you. So uh, back then, it was like you were kind of left to your own devices. So we got the nickname Coso because he always ate french fries. but. You know, uh, yeah, yeah, who cares? As long as you stop the puck, and he did. 
That was ex-NHL tough guy Chris Nyland. Nyland shared the ice with Waugh for three seasons, the first of which the 20-year-old rookie earned the aforementioned nickname Casso. Now, Nyland makes a good point about the elite athlete lifestyle. These days, sporting culture is all in on optimization. In Waugh Nyland's era, there was a, let's say, laissez-faire approach to nutrition and fitness. Superstitions, on the other hand, have survived the test of time in the hockey world. In that respect, Wall was an absolute beauty. He would grade out extremely high on a superstition test in any generation. That unmistakable intensity of his, the deep competitive desire that served as an X-factor, was stoked by a set of daily habits. Corson was also drafted by the Habs in 1984, so he broke into the NHL with Wall. Here's Corson on his former teammate's pregame routine. He'd have his gear laid out on the, uh, in the dressing room. He had a puck. He'd always have a puck sitting in front of his gear, and he'd stare at that for, like, for, forever. Man, it was so intense. And he wouldn't re- notice anything else was going around him before the game, that is. And, he, and don't touch his gear, and then don't, you know, don't bother him when he's getting prepared for the game. But it's just his eyes, those eyes of his. He was just, like, piercing, and they would just look right through you. Walt carried this heightened concentration onto the ice, stepping over the blue and red lines. He would also crouch and stare at his net to visualize it as a smaller object. Wah even became buddies with those red steel pipes. Yep, Wah talked to his goalposts. Reportedly in French, though that's beside the point. The goalposts are my friends, and I thank them for being my friends, Wah said during the 1986 Stanley Cup Final, according to hockey journalist Tom Powers. They stopped the puck for me. They helped me. I say thank you very much. I talk to them all the time. Hey man, no judgment here. Whatever gets you in the zone. Another preposterous anecdote involves Waugh and Canadians defenseman Eric Desjardins rubbing a porcelain elephant before games in the 92-93 playoffs. A Montreal cab driver had gifted them the good luck charm after a loss during the first round. So, naturally, the road roommates lugged it around North America en route to a cup. Foot who later roomed with Waugh for eight years in Colorado, says they made it a tradition to order banana splits from room service the night before every road game. In general, Foot remembers Waugh as an interesting dude to share a hotel room with. We're all in a hotel uh, in Colorado the night before our first playoff game, and um, I don't know, he's probably going to kill me if I tell you this, but I walk in, and you know, the old Keats, it's, just, it's real quick, and I go in, and uh, Waugh's standing on his bed going down to a butterfly and he still got his suit pants, dress pants on and his golf shirt. Cause we were all out to dinner as a team the night before the first playoff game. And he jumps off the bed and his hair, the thin long hair at the front flips. It's like, what the hell are you doing? He goes, nothing, nothing for Just getting ready. Just getting ready. And he was so intense. Even the night before, so focused. It kind of set me holy crap. And I was giggling, but at the same time going, here we go. <laughs> Wall would also wear the same suit and tie combo if his team was on a roll. He would write his kids' names on his stick. He didn't talk to the media on the morning of a start. All of these quirks, the practical and the strange, were implemented in the pursuit of absolute comfort and control. Wall wanted to be in a flow state for the full 60 minutes. In the process, the 6'2 netminder would cast an intimidating vibe from the crease. Hayward, Waugh's old Habs partner believes this ultra-confident, swagger-filled demeanor helped Waugh gain a legitimate psychological edge over the opposition. 
I think it makes guys try to slice the onion a little bit thinner when they do get in and do get their scoring opportunities. I mean, that's the mystique that that kind of feeds into those goaltenders that have that reputation. I think it really helps them. Shooters are convinced that they're never going to give up a, a goal where the puck goes through them. Got to make a perfect shot in order to beat them. It's not, uh, let's just get pucks on the net. It's let's create opportunities and then make the perfect shot. That that's, puts a lot more pressure on them. Was braggadocious ways were on full display in the cup final series of that 92-93 run. He was absolutely feeling it late in the first overtime of Game 4 against the LA Kings, calmly stopping Luke Robitaille on a prime scoring opportunity. Kings forward Thomas Sandstrom tried to poke the puck free as the whistle blew, but he failed miserably. Sandstrom then glided past the Habs net. He was minding his own business when Wall looked at him square and winked his left eye. The epic boast was framed perfectly by a camera operator, and the wink went as viral as something could in the pre-internet age. Tony Granato was on the Wayne Gretzky-led LA squad that lost in five games to Montreal. In the thick of it, what precisely was the Kings' strategy for beating Waugh? At our end, we're thinking, okay, we're, we got to get to him. We got to stay with him. We got to bump into him. We got to, you know, cause havoc in front of the net. We got to make sure we're crashing that for rebounds. We got to be in his face and, and, and get him off his game. The more you did that, the more he got into it. When competitors get challenged and, and opponents think they're going to get to him, that's when they rise to that next level. That's the way Gretzky was. I mean, Gretz, anytime he he was ever challenged and somebody thought that they were going to slow him down or check him or figure out how to stop him. Forget it. He had no chance. And I think Patty had that same mentality. Bring it on. You want to challenge me and you think you can get to me? Bring it on. Granado went on to coach Waugh on the Avs at the tail end of Waugh's career. By then, Waugh had become well known for holding his glove in the air for a couple of beats after making a save. Similar to when in basketball, a three-point marksman holds his extended arm in place well after the ball has left his hand. Waugh really liked to show off. However, there's a fine line between being a quote-unquote hot dogger who picks his spots and a hot dogger who exaggerates too often. Inevitably, you're going to hot dog at the wrong time. The so-called Statue of Liberty gaffe from the 0102 playoffs is proof of this theory. In a scoreless Game 6 of the Western Conference Final, Waugh lifted his glove above his head following a diving stop on Iserman, the Red Wings captain. One problem. The puck wasn't in his glove. It was sliding past the goal line. The Wings won the game 2-0 and pumped four goals past Waugh in the first period of Game 7 to clinch a series victory. Jaguer, the former Avs exec we heard from earlier, cringed as Waugh took something too far on a few occasions. Then again, Jaguer notes... Nobody's perfect. And, and rattled it a little bit, but no, it's not. He's been through so many things. And I'm sure he, if he had to do it over, he might do it differently. But Patrick's, uh, you know, he's an emotional guy. Like I remember one year we're playing in New York and uh, he's getting really frustrated or bored or he takes the puck from his own end and he's going up ice and he's He's almost at like at the red line. If he'd go uh, two feet more, he'd get a penalty because a goalie can't go past the, the red line. What the hell is he doing? I mean, sometimes you wonder, is he, is he because he's getting bored? Is he because he's an emotional guy? That's who he is. Like, that emotion, that passion, 
99% of the time, it gave us unbelievable results. And then 1% of the time, bad things happen. I'll live with the one bad things for the 99 good things that are created by my, his makeup as an athlete and as a person. Yeah, he was in an in, uh, embarrassing position, but uh, you know, I would like to tell you also that uh, that everybody was in the uh, embarrassing position. I mean, I was behind the bench for 11 goals. Maybe I could have uh, have tell him to come at the bench after the seven goals, maybe, but I don't think it's it's two goals who who's gonna who's gonna change a career. The images of December 2nd, 1995, are seared into the brains of hockey fans everywhere. Saturday night at the Montreal Forum, Waugh and the Canadians versus the Red Wings. Waugh allows five goals in the first period and another four in the first 15 minutes of the second. It's such a gong show of a game that at one point, the Forum breaks out into a mock cheer after a routine save. Waugh raises his arms and shakes his head, sarcastically saluting the crowd. Finally, mercifully, after nine goals against on 26 shots, Waugh is yanked from the net. Larry on up behind Lynette. Sends it out to Federoff. Scores! Sergei Federoff! Bingo, bingo. Get, here comes the hook. Have mercy on me. Delay here. Jablonski is coming out. They'll give the cheer. 9-1. We've barely played over half a hockey game. And this doesn't happen to that guy very often, I'm going to tell you, over his career. Waugh then tells team president Ronald Corey, who's seated directly behind the Habs bench, that it would be his final game in Montreal. He's been humiliated by coach and former teammate Mario Tremblay. Waugh and Tremblay go on to engage in a shouting match between periods, and by the next day, the team has suspended its starting goalie. It is in no way outrageous to suggest what happened next recalibrated the trajectories of two NHL franchises. Montreal sent Waugh and forward Mike Keane to Colorado in exchange for forwards Andre Kovalenko and Martin Ruschinski, as well as goalie Jocelyn Thibault. Former NHL defenseman Lyle Oldline was a minus four in that 11-1 beatdown. To this day, he strongly believes the whole ordeal was set in motion two months earlier when, just four games into the season, Corey fired GM Serge Savard and coach Jacques Demers. Patty was embarrassed, and you don't embarrass a guy like, uh, and I'm not saying anything bad about Mario Trump or anything. I like Mario. Mario was a good coach, everything. But I, I think it all come to a head when they fired uh, Serge and Jock because the amount of respect for those two people were in our dressing room was, you know, the, to give them four or five games. I mean, that wasn't fair. It was 11-1. We all played terrible. We just uh, had a meltdown, and it was a bad game, and, I don't think you embarrass a player like Patrick Waugh. I mean, they should have pulled him earlier on and maybe benched all of us. We were all bad. It wasn't just Patty. Rayshon Uhl was the man who pulled the trigger on the Waugh trade. His management career is forever marked by the deal. However, the idea of moving Waugh wasn't new. Savard, the outgoing GM, wrote in his 2020 memoir that Waugh took up too much space in the locker room and had too much influence on the coach. A change of scenery for Waugh, Savard argued, was necessary. Savard simply was unable to pull off a trade himself. Nevertheless, the whole scenario was bananas. Waugh loved being in the Montreal Fishbowl, 
he spent his entire 20s in a Habs uniform, came of age there on and off the ice, and led two Stanley Cup parades. Corson was on the St. Louis Blues at the time of the trade. He thought Waugh, once the market's golden child, would be a Canadian's lifer. But the deal was done, and it had consequences. Odeline says the events of late 95 crushed all hopes of a third cup parade for that group. If you want to look at it this way, Tom Brady goes to Tampa Bay. At 43 years old, wins the Super Bowl. Patty, I just don't understand why you would trade a guy with all that character, already won a couple of cups, lost in 89 the finals to Calgary. I think when Serge got uh, fired, I think that whole thing just triggered right down. And they traded a bunch of character guys away and, and the best goalie in the world at the time and probably the best girl goaltender ever played. In Colorado, Pierre Lacroix was laughing. As Waugh's former agent, the Avs GM knew exactly what he was getting in the deal. All-world goaltending and everyday conviction. Waugh immediately joined forces with Keane, a noted leader and glue guy, as well as forward Claude Lemieux, another recent Lacroix acquisition. The newcomers brought a sense of belief to a young, timid group that had recently relocated to Denver from Quebec City. Coach Crawford recalls a swift and sweeping impact. They knew how to carry themselves. Like Patrick came in right away and he said, hey, you know, I'm here to win the Stanley Cup. And that was the first thing in his press conference that he said. And it was a real eye opener to our guys because I think for them and even for me, it was we can say that, you know, like we we can actually say that. And I think that was one of the biggest contributions that he made is he made us really start to think like, hey, you have to be after the big fish. You have to be after, you know, the big game, uh, so to speak. And uh, the big game was the Stanley Cup. And he had no bones about stating that fact. And he knew he could back it up. And he knew that that was probably the, the level that we needed to get to. Peter Forsberg was 22 and in his second NHL season. Foot, 24, was coming into his own on the back end. Joe Sackick was a point-producing captain, but relatively young at 26. The Avs' core was stable and impressionable in 95-96. And with Waugh leading the charge, the organization blossomed into a perennial contender that won eight straight division titles and two cups prior to Waugh's retirement in 2003. Feistiness became part of the fabric of those teams. Yeah, their best players were super skilled, but they never shied away from the fight. Forward Alex Tangay played the first four of his 16 NHL seasons under Waugh's wing, even living in the veteran goalie's house as a rookie in 99-2000. Tangay says Waugh's presence was undeniable until the very end. How many guys have won four Stanley Cups or more? And in the net mining position, Marty's at three and Patrick's at four. And over the last 20, 30 years, those are the guys that still remains to the, at the top of the food chain in, in that regards. So even though he wasn't the captain of our team, he was that leader, that uncontested leader. And every time he was back there, felt he gave us a chance. In all fairness, you know, there's been other great netminders and there's always going to be a debate as to who's the greatest. But for me, I haven't played with Patrick. If I had to play game seven tomorrow in his prime, no out that Patrick was the guy that I put in that. The Waugh trade wasn't quite at the level of Gretzky to LA, but it was damn close. It was dramatic, controversial, and emotionally charged. It made Waugh both the hero and the villain. It let Waugh strap on the pads for the franchise he 
technically cheered for as a kid from Nordique's country. It split his career into two acts, ten and a half seasons and two cups in Montreal, and seven and a half seasons and two cups in Colorado. It also shifted the tectonic plates in two markets, both conferences and the league at large. The Avs retired Waz number 33 shortly after his retirement was made official. The Habs, on the other hand, didn't raise 33 to the rafters until 2008, a whole five years later. The last Montreal goaltender, the only other Montreal goaltender to win the Conn Smythe Trophy was Ken Dryden in 1971. He was a rookie, and here's another rookie to accept the Conn Smythe Trophy from NHL President John Ziegler. John? Patrick, great championship, great series, a great team, and you were the best in the 1986 playoffs. Congratulations on winning this year's Conn Smythe Trophy. Thank you well very much, sir. Patrick Waugh started his pro career as a clutch performer, winning two straight championships. He then spent the next 17 seasons solidifying that reputation. No NHLer, forward, defenseman, or goalie has their name on the Consmite Trophy as many times as Waugh, who won playoff MVP three times. Nope, not even Gretzky. Waugh leads all goalies in career playoff appearances with 247 and career playoff wins with 151. Of course, he was no slouch in the regular season. He won three Vesna trophies in a four-year span, is second all-time in regular season wins, and was the first to 500 victories. But his career save percentage jumps from 9-10 in the regular season to 9-18 in the playoffs. Waugh's body of work in the fall and winter would have made him a first ballot Hall of Famer. His work in the spring made Waugh arguably the goalie goat. I asked Carbono if he has any theories as to why Waugh excelled in the postseason and he seemed to assert that his old Habs teammate's ability to focus played a major part. Like, he enjoyed the challenge, and he was able to deal with what's around and stay in his bubble. Once you get into a playoff, there's a lot of things that gets involved. Obviously, there's a game that you play on the ice, but there's always things around, and because he was the face of the Montreal Canadiens, you know, he, he was a dead man. I mean, there was a lot of pressure on him, but he was able to shut it down and play around it, enjoyed it. I, th I think he understood that if he could do what he is able to do on the ice, the pressure would switch and go to the other team. And then the other team has to change whatever game plan that they have. And I think once you're able to do that, then you have an advantage. Wa's mind was constantly buzzing with hockey-related thoughts. In Montreal, he would flip through his collection of hockey cards on the bus to learn more about opponents, sometimes phoning up a connection in the industry to unearth additional information. In Colorado, he would control penalty kill meetings with his analysis and teaching. Luckily, hockey consumed Waugh only 99% of waking and non-waking hours. As Foote describes, there's a softer side to Waugh of which the general public hasn't been exposed. Oh, God, man, he wanted a pillow fight all the time. We went on a five-day road trip. We were getting at least two pillow fights for eight years. He only beat me once when he jumped me. Uh, he wasn't very bright in the pillow fight because he would stand up in the bed. I would stand on mine, and he'd have one with two hands, and I'd twirl two of them up, lock them up, and just beat the crap out of them. And we wrecked a few rooms, but he was a big kid. No one saw that. He'd like to hide in the closet on people and scare them and uh, be a practical joker. and. He'd throw the notepad to me in a pen. I'd be sitting in line on my bed and he goes, okay, give me your lines. I'll give you mine. 
And if we were in a slump, he'd want to look at the lines. What do you think, Footer? Here's what I think. You know, he just loved the game and he loved to win. And uh, he was a fun guy, too, but he was very serious, took it serious. Absolutely no one was surprised when Waugh started coaching two years into retirement. Now, while his standing in goalie history is rock solid, Waugh's standing in coaching history is anything but, especially at the NHL level, where he coached the Avs from 2013 to 2016. He earned the Jack Adams Award in his rookie season, but then, just two years later, he resigned from his post right before training camp. It was truly bizarre. You also might recall that Watt was fined $10,000 for an outburst in his very first game behind the Avs bench. In a fit of rage, Watt had pushed over the glass between the benches to get at Anaheim Ducks coach Bruce Boudreau. Boudreau comes over and Watt's taking the house down. On the flip side, Watt was an innovator who experimented with pulling the goalie earlier in the third period, a trend which has since taken off at all levels of hockey. The bulk of Waugh's time coaching has been spent leading the QMJHL's Quebec Remparts, though he first got his feet wet at the highest level of the organization. In 1997, while still in his prime as an NHLer, Waugh became a part owner of the Remparts. In typical Patrick Waugh fashion, he was hands-on from day one managing the club from Denver. And Hartley says his star goalie had no problem dipping into the resources around him. He would come in with his VHS tape in the morning and he would sit with me. He would bring me a a blueberry muffin every morning. And after every game that the Quebec Ramparts would play, we would sit and we would watch a few periods together and you know, he would call his coach and said, hey, Bob Hartley said this and this. And I would say, no, Patrick, don't, don't get me involved with your coaches and everything, please. Waugh has held the position of Remparts GM and coach on and off since 2005. The Big Market Junior Club won the 06 Memorial Cup and is almost always competitive. Unsurprisingly, Waugh has been fined numerous times as a junior coach. He's been unafraid to criticize referees and the commissioner. Meanwhile, his two sons, Jonathan and Frederick, were disciplined for on-ice acts of violence during their respective QMJHL playing careers. Despite the rap sheet, it's hard not to give Wakudos for grinding away in the junior ranks following such an accomplished playing career. Count Craig Billington, his former goalie partner in Colorado, among those impressed by Wa's post-playing route. There are many guys that go out of hockey and have a junior team and get on a bus and travel around uh, at his level. A lot of them go right to back to the Learjets and, and shrimp cocktail. So, you know, he's a guy that believed in grassroots. He was passionate about and, and helping others. I think that would be the one thing that stuck out for me was his overall passion. Like I know you, we see the portrayal on the media side of it, um, but I, I have a tremendous amount of respect for the passion he has for the game and the love he has for the game. Waugh's legacy is multifaceted. His first claim to fame is being a perennial playoff winner, which is perhaps best exemplified by an unreal stretch of 10 straight OT victories during the 93 Cup run. His second claim is a deep association with the Butterfly and Francois Allaire. I can't emphasize enough how well Allaire's philosophies and teachings on goaltending aligned with Waugh's work ethic, size, skating, and cat-like reflexes. They met at the perfect moment, supercharging each other's career paths 
and changing the game forever. And the third claim to fame was daily determination to get incrementally better, even in the back half of his career. Crawford was particularly smitten by this part of Waugh's makeup. That is, is largely a secret of, of why great people are such great performers is because they, are, they have that improvement mentality. When you win or when you lose, the one thing that I give Patrick a lot of credit for teaching me is your response has to be the same. You're always looking to improve. If you always look to improve, then you might find that little bit of a fraction that's going to make you better. It's easier when you lose because usually there's four or five things that you might be able to, to improve upon. But when you win, that ability to push yourself to that next level, uh, that oftentimes separates the good from the great. And Patrick was certainly great. There was never a dull moment for Waugh the player. You could certainly say the same thing now about Waugh the coach. His name ends up in the rumor mill every single time a Canadian's coach or executive is on the hot seat, in large part because everybody knows what Waugh brings to the table. What's that old cliche, Shane Corson? Old habits die hard? The reason I say Pash Waugh is the best is because of the championships and the con Smice, and he just took his game to another level, and it's because he loved the pressure. He thrived under it. He just, he loved it. You could just see it. He'd bring it on. That's just the way he was, is to bring the pressure on, and he could put a team on his back and win, and win a cup for you. I mean... Some guys cave under the pressure. He doesn't. He just thrived under it. He loved it. When Goalies Were Weird is a podcast by The Score. Nick Roy is the audio engineer. Nick Ferris is a reporter and researcher. Guy Spurrier is an editor and producer. And Rory Bars is an editor and the executive producer. Thank you for listening.